the delay, guys. Uh, we're back with episode two of our Venture Brothers-focused graphic policy radio podcast. Uh, last week, we covered the first episode of season six, and today we're on the second episode of season two. Um, this is uh, our opportunity to do a deep dive into the Venture Brothers cartoon show. Um, I'm Ilana, and I'm being joined by Stephen Adewell. Uh, Hello. We... Hello. Um, we're going to be talking about the pop cultural references and historic references that are in the cartoon. Um, and we're going to be talking about the show, uh, this particular episode as a whole as well. Uh, Stephen Adewell is a history professor, which is an awesome perspective to lend to the show. Uh, I myself, uh, as will be probably evident from today's conversation, studied a lot about popular culture uh, with a focus on subcultures when I was in college. So all this 80s stuff is very opportune. Um, so, so uh, yeah, I, I, you know, I, I uh, think we should just get into it. And uh, for those of you who haven't been with us before, um, there is there are a couple of things that I've pulled out from this episode that are possibly to be read as errors in the show that I have some interesting thoughts around. So, uh, so Stephen, do you want okay. to take it away? Sure. So uh, just to do a brief recap, uh, in this episode, uh, Billy Quizboy and Pete White, uh, dubbed the Pink Pilgrim, go toe-to-toe uh, with their nemesis, Augustus St. Cloud, for control of a red rubber ball from a Duran Duran video. But to save pop culture and possibly the world, they sell him conjectural technologies, which is bought by Ventec, which, it turns out, is having a rough time because Rusty Venter doesn't know how to run a business, doesn't care about social media or Silicon Valley, and wants the company to focus on super science instead. Dean convinces him that the company can do both, so it needs a speculative engineering division. However, to get the company back on its feet, they need the old sea captain who hits rock bottom when he menaces Gus the polar bear to get his fix of Trank. After undergoing uh, Hank and Dean's patented Trank rehab system, the sea captain is back in corporate management form. While they handle the business side of things, Brock Sampson and Sergeant Baytrid have to deal with wide whales arching. It turns out that Wide Whale and the Crusaders Action League are running a protection racket together, and Ventures refuse to pay up. Without OSI assets, they trick Wild Whale's men into stealing a fake Aztec mask and smuggle Gus the Bear into his penthouse. Meanwhile, the, rock, uh, the Monarch and uh, Henchman 21 are dealing with the ban on the Monarch arching Dr. Venture by tracking down the people ahead of him on the list door-to-door. Uh, taking down Reducer uh, repairs their working relationship, but they return home to find that hidden in the monarch's family home in Newark is the goddamn Batcave. So a lot of this episode. <laughs> you know, I loved this episode, and I actually liked it more upon second viewing. Even um, last episode was really just there to sort of introduce us to the new place that the story would be taking place, and this one, you know, we're starting to see both the setting and the characters that are set up there really begin to pay off. Um, I have a weakness for some of the subject matter that's handled here. Although, to be honest, I have a weakness for pretty much all of the subject matter that is handled in this show, with only a few exceptions. But um, but I thought it was a great episode. What about you? Uh, well, I, this was an episode where I was very glad that we were handling this podcast together, because uh, while there was a lot that I glommed onto, a lot of the music was kind of new to me. Um, some of the specific references. There was a lot I liked in this podcast. Um, to an extent, it's still um, table setting, you know, especially, uh, you know, getting Billy Quizboy and Pete White 
into venture industries. Um, and I have to say that the Wide Whale subplot didn't really feel like it paid off that much, uh, with, the, <clears throat> with a few exceptions. Uh, but I loved everything having to do with the uh, the sea captain and uh, Rusty and Dean. Uh, and, oh, the Monarch and Henchman 21 were my favorite stuff in particular, and I really cannot wait to speculate about uh, what the revelation about the goddamn Batcave uh, spells for uh, the backstory of the Monarch. Yeah, absolutely. Because if you'll recall, his parents died a mysterious death. Um, so it would kind of be amazing, actually, if he really was the heir to Batman, and this is sort of a commentary on what Batman creates. Well, not just that, but, you know, his parents supposedly died in a plane crash uh, mm-hmm. in the New Jersey Pine Barrens, uh, but we know that, because um, we, we've seen a photograph from the monarch's childhood in which, uh, you know, him and his parents are um, kind of over for a play date at the old Venture compound. So clearly he knew Rusty Venture from childhood. And given that, you know, Dr. Uh, Jonas Venture Sr. was a big wheel within superhero circles, it really suggests that maybe the Monarch's parents were as well and that, you know, this is something else that he's either sort of forgotten or repressed or never knew. Um, yeah, that has, I suspect so. You know, that has potentially huge implications uh, for you know his kind of relationships with various characters. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, uh, I, I, this was this is something that I feel like there's been there's been hints of this before, but this is really pushing it into the forefront, and it explains yeah. also why they continue to use that space in New Jersey as his parents' house. Right. Um, oh, the other thing I just want to mention about the photo is that. In addition to being superhero, uh, you know, in the superhero world, um, Jonas Venture Sr. liked to throw uh, key parties back in the 70s. So it's quite possible that the resemblances between Rusty and uh, the Monarch are more than just coincidental. They might be genetic. Yeah, I mean, you know, red hair is recessive, but it's also not the weirdest thing in the world. Uh, but that would be that would be a really fascinating take on the whole idea of the characters being doubles of each other and their hate and their they, their hatred of each other is so much like the hatred of small difference, like the, the hate. What is the expression of the the hatred of small differences, the vanity yeah. of small differences? So that would really be fascinating. Okay, so let's talk about the references, and this was a an episode that was. Like really, really dense with episode, uh with references, and a lot of them very specific uh references. A lot of this uh heavy lifting is going to be done by Alana um, but uh you know we start off the episode with the whole thing about using mint mint uh mint mouthwash uh in a, a batch of cookie dough batter and I don't know yeah. it sounds like to me that something that kids did like that. Specifically, you know, Public and Hammer did when they were kids. <laughs> or at least when they were stoned and they, and they were teenagers. I, I don't know much about baking, and I'm curious as to whether or not the alcohol content in mouthwash would chemically prevent the cookies from, like, baking. I, I should have researched that. I'm not really sure. Yeah, but it, it does have that kind of, like, Pop Rocks and Cola mm-hmm. kind of urban legend quality to it, doesn't it? 
It does. It does. Um, so after that, uh, uh, St. Cloud attacks conjectural technologies with Truckosaurus. Oh, and guys, uh, just in case Cloud- you don't remember, because this is a new character, St. Cloud is like the uh, is the official arch villain now assigned to Billy and and Mr. Pink, Mr. White. Sorry. Well, he, he's not a new character. He's actually a very very old character. He dates all the way back to. Uh, episode, I think it was in the first season when... Yeah, uh, but he Dr. was just Venture, in the background then. Like, we didn't get a name for him until last season. Yeah, um, and especially that, like, he and, and Billy Quizboy had this, uh, you know, relationship, uh, you know, this antagonistic relationship. Um, so we then get this, like, 70s cartoon intro with uh, Billy Quizboy and the uh, and uh, Pete White, who now has his own superhero moniker, as the Pink Pilgrim. Uh, what did you think of, of uh, <laughs> Pete White's look? Um, you know, I, it's a strange fashion choice because, like, Pete White is a character who, like, cares about appearances, you know? Um, so it, it was sort of I, – I, I thought it's, like, it's not a particularly good look. So that was kind of surprising to me, but the joke is very funny and it feels very Hanna-Barbera. And I really think the Pink Pilgrim is a reference to Solomon Kane, um, who is yeah. – um, Right, uh, uh, Howard's uh, other pulp hero. Um, you know, he had Conan, and then Solomon Kane was like his second most popular pulp hero. Yes. He was essentially a Puritan who ran around beating people up and having angst. Um, well, specifically, <laughs> he was the the uh, Puritan Avenger, a uh, kind of a swashbuckling, uh, you know, religious fanatic who fought all kinds of supernatural and human antagonists. Uh, and had a kind of um, interesting fatalistic uh, religious perspective, uh, and it kind of makes a weird fit for for you know Pete White, who who doesn't really share any of those qualities. Um, but um, you know, I guess the the more practical thing is that it shields Pete White from the sun, uh, you know, the, <laughs> the broad uh, brimmed hat and the long sleeves and so on and so forth. That's true. But if he so, just was worried about that, he could have dressed up as Marceline from Adventure Time, you know. Yeah. She she managed um, to keep out of the sun. Oh, one quick so, thing, just dialing back. If, yeah. Truckosaurus is, like, actually a truck that's shaped like a dinosaur, just like in the cartoon, that you can actually go and see at monster truck rallies. Yeah. This is a um, thing you can experience in real life. It eats cars. Oh, yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, talking about the, the cartoon intro a little bit more, uh, I mean, first of all, the the visual look of it was really distinctive because it had that weird kind of uh, focus and kind of washed out color that I associate actually mostly with like '70s BBC television. Mm-hmm. Uh, but also with any sort of poorly like, preserved cartoon, you know. Yeah, uh, and uh, you know there were little flashes here and there of like Saint Cloud as Galactus. Uh, Billy Quizboy having basically like a, a Green Lantern um, uh, energy fist, which mm-hmm. uh, kind of resemble, or you know, which they they play on for the rest of the episode. The the whole sort of uh, reality versus the fantasy of uh, extendable hands. <laughs> um, yeah. And you know, they, they this really played up Billy's logo, which we've seen before, but. When I saw it in this episode, I want—I just had to figure out, like, well, what, why this logo? I love the Lee Close Boys logo, and it just sort of nails it 
of that mid-century kind of feel, and I couldn't quite figure out what it was a reference to, so I asked a couple friends, and we concluded that it's a reference to Number Muncher's Game, Qbert, and Mr. Owl from the uh, Tootsie Roll commercials. That was the only one I had really seen on my own. And then, of course, the Riddler and his question mark usage. But it's just a wonderful mm-hmm. logo design. Yeah. Um, and it's something that it's played with for a, a while. Um, yeah. But it's sort of, you know, it's newly prominent. Um, so yeah. after all of this buildup, we then get this wonderful sort of deflation where all of them decide to actually work out more sensible arching schedules. Um, you know, because uh, Pete White has, you know, dentistry, and there's a whole bunch of things that I guess the thing Cloud flaked on. And I, I really like that because that, you know, one of the things that the show has done really, really well from the beginning is kind of think about what would the real life of superheroes be like. And, you know, yes, in Marvel Comics, you know, every time that superheroes go out shopping, uh, you know, the mole men attack or something. But, you know, you got to think that that would be really inconvenient just to live your life. So clearly, you know, your your mutual nemesis can't be a sort of a totally remote figure. There's got to be a little bit of communication and give and take. Yeah, definitely. And uh, I also feel like it just really emphasizes how regulated all of this is in a way and, like, inauthentic, essentially, like – you know, yeah. like the Red Skull is like actually trying to destroy American democracy. But what Augusta St. Cloud and these guys are doing is essentially masturbation. Yeah. And, you know, there's always been this thing from the beginning about, you know, is this, how much of this is pantomime? How much of this is real? But on the flip side, the idea that these rules are also somewhat necessary for like the spirit of superheroism versus the reality of life that, you know, if you don't have these rules, then, you know, your life becomes this kind of Hobbesian struggle for survival where you have to be ready to kill at a moment's notice. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, part of what the regulation does is it means that, you know, not everything is blowing up all the time so that you can live something of a normal life. Um, it's funny because so, comics don't do that at all. This is really definitely like them calling comics out on this kind of framework. Yeah. Um, so, we then get this uh, a brief uh, step away where we find out that you know Helper is still a murderer, and they're not <laughs> letting they're not letting the fact that he pushed Jaybot off a roof go away, which I really like. Um, and we then get this huge running thing about Augusta St. Cloud and the Red Ball. Now, these are a set of references I have to admit, like. This was not in my wheelhouse. So, Ilana, <laughs> you're going to have to do some heavy lifting here. Explain to me Duran Duran and the Red Bull. Okay. So there is a Duran Duran song called Is There Something I Should Know? Um, and it's uh, from 1983. It's a really great music video. I actually suggest folks go listen to, listen to the song and watch it. And the video has a red ball and a red pyramid in it, identical to those which we see in this. And in fact, one of the sets that is used in the music video is what Augustus um, has built in his basement. Uh, Duran Duran was like a huge deal in the 80s. Um, Their music is fantastic. And they also had really good music videos. Uh, so the if if you guys if you're not like literate in the 80s and it's like know that if you were a young person 
you know, of a certain age, you, you would have definitely seen this. Um, the interestingly, as I was doing a little, I when I before I like went and looked up the that particular music video, which oh, okay, you probably don't recognize the, the, the catch line from the song that you might recognize is when I heard that song name, I was like, which song is that? It's the one that be, it's the song that begins with "Please, please tell me now." So if maybe that triggers it if you haven't already realized oh, okay. what song it is. It's yeah. Anyway, really good music video. Uh, but I was looking at the visual references, and when I saw the pyramid, I actually was called to mind was the red pyramid on the cover of Gary Newman's album, The Pleasure Principle, which came out in 1979. Both the video from the Duran Duran video and the Pleasure Principle album from Gary Newman, um, who you might know from songs like Cars, uh, he was more of a post-punk thing, um, that are both referencing a painting by René Magritte called The Pleasure Principle. So there's actually a lot of fine art connection in there as well. Um, Saint Augustine St. Cloud is wearing the same outfit that Simon Le Bon, the singer of Duran Duran, uh, is wearing in the video with the, this tie tucked into his shirt. Um, right. And he probably, that actually is uh, Simon Le Bon's outfit, just because that's the kind of person St. Cloud is. St. Cloud could not fit into Simon Le Bon's well, yeah, outfit. Yeah, it probably had, a, had an altar. <laughs> But I don't know. I, for authenticity. He does. It's probably the original tie, if not the rest of it. Um, and, uh, you know, this comes a little bit later in the episode, but I want to sort of cover the red ball imagery all at once. So um, St. Claude's mo- monologue that he goes into um, is, is where we sort of pull out a number of these references all in one place, if you want to get them. Um, he talks about the significance of the ball. And it's interesting because Billy is like immediately on the same page about the value of this. Whereas you have uh, Mr. White is sort of like, this is all cute, but this isn't actually something of value. Um, so or the line magic. from, yeah. or, or magic. And I do think it's, it's, it's an interesting question with around whether it's magic. Uh, so the line that he says here is, um, oh, sorry, I just scrolled down too far on my page. And I love they're joking about how they're not impressed or not impressed with the set that he built in the basement. Uh, and actually, when the set is revealed, it has these black lines that divide up the screen, like the way you would have an edit of a collage. That is done yeah. in the music video. That is in the music video. Oh, um, it's also okay. sort of That's a visual reference. To, yes, and it's a visual reference to Pierre Mondurin, whose style is referenced in a lot of Duran Duran's early imagery as well. Um, like you can, when you, there's like a lot of like Russian formalism and modernist, like abstract expressionist art referenced in their album art and in their music videos. Okay, so here's the speech. This is the Please Please Tell Me Ball, formed by Mark Bolin, inflated by Roxy Music, its power passed down to every new romantic band ever since. Without this ball, the new romantics could never have happened. Duran Duran would be a jock rock band. Imagine no Spandau Ballet to write if you leave. John Hughes is without inspiration, forcing Molly Ringwald to remain on the facts of life. Her plucky charm propels the show into legend, allowing Kim Fields to successfully run for public office. So tell me, quiz boy, are you prepared for a world of jocks led by President Tutti? Which, of course, is the opposite of the world he wants. Now, let me break this down a little bit about what all those damn things mean. So Mark Bolin was the founder of T-Rex. You were basically was the founder of glam rock. Um, You probably know songs like Bang a Gong, Get It On, and 20th Century Boy. He is one of the greatest musicians ever. 
uh, you could like, if you're listening to this podcast later, like stop, stop and go listen to his album, The Slider right now and, and come back because it's like the greatest thing. Um, and so he founded it. And then they say inflated by Roxy Music, which I would take to mean that it became, in, it, it grew bigger and was expanded on. And in terms of the kinds of instruments that were used, uh, that is true because Roxy Music really brought in the synthesizers and the synthesizers ah. are key for what we would now think of. And mind you, T-Rex began in the late, late, late 60s, really hit stride in the early 70s. Uh, direct, uh, you know, T-Rex is like from the late 70s all the way through the mid 80s. So this is sort of going over a period of time, right? Um, so Roxy Music is like one of the, also one of the key experimental sort of glam rock bands that came after that. Um, you've probably heard the song More Than This, which was in the soundtrack of um, uh, Lost in Translation or the song Love is the Drug. Um, so they brought in the synthesizers. And then we catch something in which Augustus St. Cloud and perhaps our script writers, but I'm not sure, but maybe, are wrong. He says that If You Leave is a Spandau Ballet song. It is not. Uh, Spandau Ballet is a new romantic band, and I'll go and describe that artistic movement uh, later on the show. Um, Spandau Ballet is like, you know, probably one of the most important new romantic bands, but that's not a song they wrote. Uh, they have a song called Only When You Leave, but the song that he's thinking of is the song that's at the very end of the John Hughes movie, Pretty in Pink. Um, John Hughes is like the director of all of these wildly popular 80s romantic movies. I never mm -hmm. really connected with them at all because they, I, I just, they felt super heteronormative and like for popular kids, even though that they think that they're for outsiders, they really didn't feel that way to me hmm. as a kid. Um, but anyway, so at the end of Pretty in Pink, the, the, um, the like guy who sort of dressed in an American version of new romantic clothes and was like sort of the oddball character, Ducky, was supposed to get together with Molly Ringwald's character, but it did not test well in theaters. So they actually changed the ending to have her get together with like the cute guy, or I should say, he's not actually cute. The, the guy who's painted to be the conventionally attractive guy in the, in the movie. Uh, and to make that ending work, John Hughes asked Spandau, but asked um, not Spandau Ballet, but a band called Orchestral Maneuvers in the Dark to write a song for the ending of the movie. And in 24 hours, the band wrote the song, If You Leave, for the end of the John Hughes movie. So the song did not inspire John Hughes. John Hughes hired a band to write the song. Um, and he, mm. and he had that all happen because he had to make an ending for the movie that was more palatable to the general public. Um, right. So that's really a weird inversion, I guess, of like what you would have thought they'd be talking about there. Um, yeah. I mean, so I have two theories about okay. what could explain this, or I have a couple okay. actually. Okay. One of which is that it could be uh, that Augustus St. Cloud is wrong because, mm -hmm. like, his whole backstory with Billy Quizboy is that, like, they're both obsessive pop culture collectors and uh, kind of aficionados, but Billy Quizboy beat him in trivia. So mm -hmm. it could be that this is just, like, part of his Achilles heel at work. He just gets mm -hmm. details wrong, um, you know, because if you leave and only when you leave are, you know, pretty similar titles. Uh, so that's possible. Um, another possible is this could be some weird, like, Illuminati secret history shit going on. Because, mm -hmm. you know, if they're positing this, you know, kind of musical, mystical um, 
you know, uh, intersection in the 1980s mm-hmm. um, that, you know, also involved time travel. Uh, it could well be that, you know, John Hughes was inspired by the song and then to avoid a paradox had to order the song to be written. Um, <laughs> that is know, possible. So that, that, could be, that could be happening. Uh, and I'm not aware of there being any connection between Molly Ringwald and Facts of Life, actually. So, like, that on top of it all, right? It's, it could be a counter history of some sort. Yeah. Um, and especially since, you know, part of the whole kind of thing with the the uh, red rubber ball is that, like, if you use this to go back in time, you... Oh, no, she was on the Facts of Life. Oh, she was? Yeah, from 1979 to 1980. Um, well, thank you for checking me on that. Okay. Anyway, but you know what they what they posit is basically uh, if you have this ball, you can go back to the old west and mm-hmm. thereafter change pop culture history. Um, and uh, but, so just, you know, yeah. what that means, obviously, is something we're going to discuss uh, more with the themes. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you know, we could be dealing with some weird reality in which you know pop culture is just slightly different. <laughs> But I, that sounds yes. a little bit like a reach. No, I, I think that that's entirely possible. I, do, I honestly think we could go either way. Um, and the, the Red Pyramid in the music video, in the Duran Duran video, is like when somebody hits it, it does sort of trigger some like weird video stuff that seems to look like it's in the Old West. So the fact that he cites the Old West is not random. Like there's Old West stuff in the music video. Um, then we have St. Cloud says, Reflex is a lonely child. After after they fumble the the trying to steal the ball back. Um, yeah, this, this was this, their and, sort of failed uh, hero moment. Which, like, I know I was proud of Billy for pulling it, but Mr. White said he did it wrong out of a reflex. And to which St. Cloud says, "Reflex is a lonely child that's waiting by the park," which is a line in the song "Reflex" by Duran Duran. Uh, definitely check out the music video because they're also playing in a surrealist movie set in that video. There's, I'm telling you, Duran Duran has like fantastic music videos and really good pop right. songs. Um, uh, oh, when, when, before the whole thing begins, um, when they're in the bathroom, uh, Mr. White is playing with hair mousse and giving himself various eighties hairstyles. Hair mousse yeah, actually is what recognize. you would use. Hair mousse would, is like, would be a useful component towards constructing a number of different 80s hairstyles. Um, she cites a flock of seagulls, which their video yep. that you've probably heard is Iran. That hairdo was like a couple of the guys in the band had it. Um, they were and definitely like part of called a flock of seagulls haircut. Yes, but it was actually like variations on that were popular. It wasn't like there was one specific thing you had to do and variations on it were really a central visual identifier of members of the new romantic scene in general. Um, then right. he says, I'm in the Exploited, which in the other direction is a Scottish punk band from the early 80s that has their, their singer has a, lo- has a mohawk and they have a mohawk on their logo. Um, they have like the song that you might know would be Punk's Not Dead. Um, and then he does, it doesn't, he does his hair in a different shape that I couldn't quite figure out. And he said, remember Tool Academy, as I think what he says. Uh, I have to look this one up. Tool Academy was a reality TV show. And some guys on it had weird hair because they were like, I guess supposed to be dude okay. bros or something. Um, yeah. <laughs> really, it's kind of all over the place. Um, mm-hmm. The thing that I was sort of fixating on was, like, what was going on with Mr. the Mr. Rogers puppet that, like, <laughs> Augustus St. Cloud uses as a sponge in the bath. Uh, 
because, like, that was legitimately kind of fucking with my head a little bit. Um, and I, I really kind of identified with, with uh, Billy Quizboy when he sort of said, you know, you're you're screwing with our childhood here. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, even though it's an inanimate object, obviously, you know, it is like something that, you know, I remember as a child watching Mr. Rogers on PBS. And the Puppets idea are not really be, inanimate, you know? Well, there's that. But also the fact that something so a show that was all about kind of innocence and safe spaces being sexualized was like yeah. really wrong. And it, it kind of, I think, gets to something of the heart of what's going on with, with Billy Quizboy and St. Cloud, where they're all about collectibles and pop culture as sort of uh, physical objects and memorabilia and sort of, uh, you know, uh, material history. But, you know, St. Cloud is all about, you know, he, he's so wealthy that it doesn't really, the collection doesn't mean to him what it means to, you know, people who went rooting around in, you know, uh, secondhand shops or, you know, went to cons and, like, scraped together allowance to pick up stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, so... You know, for Billy, or like the actual, been, or like the actual cultural creators whose work he's referencing and loves. Right. Um, so you know, you get this sense that, like, you know, he he almost kind of reminds me of the like, the collector uh, from from Marvel. That it's just like he his mm-hmm. it's just this meaningless amassing of of objects. Whereas Billy kind of you know loves these things, um, and also you know I think the. The scene in the the Venture Brothers lobby, um, I think, was kind of meant to be something of a reference to, like, you know, what happens if, if you know, all you do with this stuff is you stick it in a museum and you don't really do anything with it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, okay, the the next thing I wanted to talk about in terms of references is the logistics of grappling arms. <laughs> uh, because I thought this was like, you know, Public and Hammer kind of at their best. Because the, like, grapple guns and grapple arms and, like, expendable arms and the whole Mr. Fantastic thing, that's a huge genre trope. And, mm-hmm. you know, given that, you know, Billy Quiz Boy is, you know, uh, <laughs> not a, a, you know, incredibly strong physical specimen at the best of times, you know, I think they're pointing to some real kind of limitations, like all of this you know, expanding and, and you know, uh, you know, uh, retracting and, you know, stuff all requires motors and, you know, in reality it requires motors and actuators. And, you know, that stuff is hard to, to conceal in a human body. Um, and, you know, that kind of points to some of the ultimate problems with that kind of stuff, which is, like, why wouldn't you have a device outside of your body to do that? Why would you... You know, I mean, he talks about it being hooked into his nervous system, but I was thinking, like, why would you connect that to your skeletal system, or you know, you're gonna dis- yeah. you know, dislocate your arm every time you every time you try to use it? Yeah, it's uh, definitely making yourself more open to pain. Right. Uh, and also, you know, it just it it's not as functional, right? You know, he has this one moment where he can slap the ball around, but he can't, you know latch on to the ball. He can't go over the gates. He can't really do anything with the arm, and it ultimately is sort of more of a hindrance uh, than a help. 
so yeah, why don't we, it's definitely um, like a it's like it's like a vanity rather than an actual practical thing. Right. Um, so why don't we uh, move on for a second and talk about uh, everything having to do with Newark? Yes. Uh, so and that's Newark, you know, not New well, York. I know it's very hard to tell the, those apart Newark. sometimes. N e w a r k. Yeah, uh, Brook City. Um, so apologies for forgetting where uh, the monarch's parents' house was uh, in the last episode. To me, very significant in this episode that Newark, that the house was in Newark, because if you ever look at uh, some of the maps that um, DC used to make of like where their fictional cities were supposed to be in the United States, uh, Newark is pretty damn close to where Gotham City is supposed to be in the in the DC universe. Uh, so you know that makes a lot of sense why he lives there in New Jersey, um, as opposed to uh, I think previously we thought you know maybe he was in the Pine Barrens or maybe somewhere else in New Jersey. Yeah. Um, and then you know we also got very much you know. The monarch for all, but you know he he has some sort of ongoing amnesia about his childhood. Uh, he definitely has this you know New Jersey side to him, where you got the whole thing where he's like he he's you know dissing Patterson, New Jersey, and saying Newark's way better. Um, so any thoughts on that? Well, so Newark is on the uh, has a better train line location and has the path as well as an Amtrak station. Patterson is only on Jersey Transit, so from my limited perspective as a New York City resident, I do think Newark is better because it is easier to get to. <laughs> um, yeah, and it is also where the airport is. Right, um, and that would also like make sense the the. Uh, Path train joke from from last episode. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um. So. Yeah. Um. So why don't we talk about the fact that you know the let's, let's talk about this thing about you know the Batcave. Uh, yeah. You know because the you know the thing about the monarch has always been you know in the show that he's someone who's very uh, artistically dedicated to supervillainy that he doesn't really care about guild regulations. Um, he doesn't really care about, uh, you know, he can't run the, the sort of the business side of things. That was always, uh, you know, Dr. and Mrs. the Monarch slash Dr. Girlfriend's kind of expertise. He, in fact, has always historically not really gotten along with the guild, but that mm-hmm. he's got this sort of pure dedication to hating uh, Dr. Venture. Um, and, you know, when he gets fired up, uh, you know, there is no one better at him at doing the the real kind of supervillain uh, monologuing and and uh, you know kind of just you know pure artistic hatred, uh, which makes the what we learn in this episode, for example, about uh, Wild Whale, Wide Whale and Doctor Dugong really interesting. <laughs> so uh, yeah, why, yeah, you want to. No, I was also just going to say, like, you know, uh, he doesn't care about money. Like, a lot of the things that we think of as motivation for supervillains and comics and stuff, like, there could be political motivations and there's greed. And, like, 
the monarch isn't motivated by either of those things. He's an art for art's sake kind of guy. Yeah, I mean, he, he, for art's he does sake. not care about world domination. Um, he doesn't care. You know, we we saw that when um, uh, management consultant uh, Dr. Henry Killinger kind of came to his base. Like, <laughs> he doesn't care about that. He doesn't really care about arching anyone besides uh, Dr. Venture. He's really in it because he just really hates Rusty Venture and wants to fuck with his life, um, you know, as much as possible. So, I still like you know, the expression the, arch for arch's sake, though. That makes me very happy, and I'm going to stick by that. Yeah, yeah. That was very good. Um, and But this is probably going to have huge repercussions. Uh, learn in this episode that Wide Whale is the brother of Dr. Dugong, and the monarch brutally murdered Dr. Dugong in season three. Um, He's a know, manatee. He was... Tears of a Sea Cow was the episode, yeah? Yes. Yeah, that was that was a great episode. Uh, and it really was about kind of the monarch having issues with the guild and the, the way that the guild does things. Um, so, you know, the in the guild's kind of uh, weird, you know, trade union insurance company kind of world, super villainy isn't supposed to involve death. And that is a major line that the monarch crossed, and that he's never really had to uh, confront particularly before. No. And you know, I kind of think that you know, it's got to be inevitable this this season that you know he's going to come to blows with uh, the wide whale and you know possibly the guild of calamitous intent as well uh, about the, sort of the consequences for his actions. Which you know, I think this is kind of the best example of how the Venture Brothers can do continuity. And in some ways, mm-hmm. do it you know even better than traditional comic book uh, companies because it's really about kind of these long term consequences for people's behavior. Yeah, it's some like Chris Claremont level deep game stuff that people don't get to seem to do anymore. Yeah. Um, um I oh uh, White Whale makes us mention of going to take um going to take a uh, venture on a Nantucket sleigh ride which is a wonderful historic reference, actually. Um, that was whaling ship speak for when you speared a whale, but the person who had the spear was on a small craft and not on the main ship, and so it wasn't really anchored right, and the whale would take off, and your boat would just be trailing it, and like everybody would probably die, basically. Right. It, it's the Captain Ahab scenario, basically. Yeah. Uh, and, and speaking of whaling stuff, I mean – while I was really underwhelmed by a lot of the wide whale stuff in this episode, the moment where his uh, gigantic whale um, submarine pops up from the floor was one of my favorite of the episode. Um, and, you know, it partially it reminded me of the, the giant blue whale that hangs in the New York uh, Museum of Natural History. But it was also yeah. just like a really inventive, like super villain kind of thing, you know, just amazingly visually uh, distinctive. Although, you know, I, I got to say, I think one of the things that kind of weirds me out about the wide whale is he eats krill, but he also dresses his henchmen as krill. Yeah. You know, I kind of think, you know, if I was a henchman, I would be really weirded out by that. I didn't realize they were krill. I thought they were lobsters. I'm not really good at this. 
Um, yeah, huh. I'm not either. But it's it's at least the way that they're depicting Krill in the show. Like when he eats a bowl of it uh, when he's sitting down with the fallen archer. Um, and, uh, oh, by the way, I mean, you know, I'm wondering if this is yet another layer of fun, but like the fact that mm-hmm. we have superheroes who are literally like part of a, a criminal syndicate, uh, you know, I'm wondering if he's sort of a morally fallen archer as well as, you know, the feet thing. Yeah, definitely. Um, that I, I, I definitely read it that way. And that, that, that would be why he was, I also feel like the voice acting on him is super underwhelming and that has to be a choice, you know, because they're usually mm. such good voice actors on this. I think they must want us to be very underwhelmed. Well, anyway, I mean, he's kind of, you know, if you think about it, he's not much of a superhero, right? Like, First of all, there, there's always been that whole gag about, you know, Hawkeye and, and Green Arrow, just like, of all things in the world, why a bow? Um, but also just, you know, if he's a superhero who's, you know, working for the mob, he's not really very heroic, is he? It's kind of, you know, that's another thing that's sometimes been done on the show is just, you know, superheroes not being, you know, they may be as physically powerful as they're supposed to be, but not acting as morally as they're supposed to be. And that that includes, for example, um, uh, you know, Dr. Venture himself. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, if you look at some of the shit that he's done back in his day. Uh, yeah, he know, is not. You kind of okay. really question, um, you know, who are the good guys and who are the bad guys. Um, anyway, so on a, on a completely different note, uh, one of the other running gags, uh, from this episode that I really dug uh, as a New York City kid is Gus the Depressed Bear from the Central Park Zoo. Uh, so for those of you uh, who are not from New York, uh, for many decades, uh, the there was a polar bear in the Central Park Zoo named Gus uh, who was clinically depressed. Um, and this manifested in uh, this obsessive behavior uh, and I remember seeing this, like, when I was a kid, and I, I, I went to the Central Park Zoo, where he would swim in the exact same pattern for, like, 12 hours a day. I mean, down to, down to like, he would push off on the same rock with the same foot each time. Um, and the Central Park That's Zoo so tragic. Hired, I know. And uh, the Central Park Zoo actually hired a, a therapist for him. He was the first zoo animal in history to be treated with Prozac. Maybe he needs to be treated by not being in a zoo. Yeah. Um, and, you know, unfortunately, uh, you know, Gus uh, died in, in 2013. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, he's missed, but also kind of a sign of, like, there's a slight problem of holding a giant bear in what is not a very big environment in the Central Park Zoo. Uh, but yeah. you see that, you know, he in in this episode anyway, you know, he at least got out and got to kick some ass. Yeah. I'm really depressed now. Moving along. All right. <laughs> um, okay. So on on uh, slightly more, uh, well, also depressing, but, but kind of weird <laughs> um, train, um, you know, the, the whole plot line of uh, the old sea captain being addicted to tranquilizer darts. Uh, kind of really uh, reached fruition uh, this episode uh, because he breaks into Gus's paddock uh, to basically get 
deliberately shot with tranquilizer darts, um, has to get picked up by Brock, and then gets put through uh, Trank Dart uh, Detox, which leads to this whole extended uh, train spotting reference. Uh, yeah, they this? really nailed it. They had so many of the aspects of that scene from Train Spotting, really, yeah, really perfect. But, you know, also with sort of Hank and Dean's like personal, uh, you know, characteristics added. Like, yes, there is a vomit, uh, you know, a bucket for piss, a bucket for shit, a bucket for vomit. But you know, they also put a bucket for the cat, um, and you know, they give him uh, what was it, Fruit Loops and. Uh, some sort of cereal, like sugary cereal. I couldn't remember what. Uh, but also, you know, like I started laughing hysterically in that episode because I thought to myself, well, of course Hank and Dean, as, you know, boy sidekicks, you know, in addition to being constantly kidnapped, probably got shot, shot with tranquilizer darts a whole bunch. So the hmm. kind of the disturbing side of the comedy is that, like, you know, you're dealing with two teenagers who've had to go through, you know, uh, withdrawal and rehab a whole bunch of times to the point where they've got a patented system for how to deal with it. Huh. I just assumed that they were aping popular culture where... No, I think they were, like, you know... I think they've gone through with this. They they know the the monkey on the back. Uh, Hmm. Uh, and there was also kind of an interesting thing where they were riffing on, like, both his sort of feeling like a failure as a sea captain, but also as a businessman, which I felt, like, played into the, the whole kind of running plot about Ventec Industries. It's interesting, right, like, that the pirate is the business guy. I think it says something about business. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's corporate piracy. Um, mm-hmm. You know, but... Um, you know, we'll we'll talk more about that when we get to the sort of uh, theme section of the episode because there's a lot I want to unpack. Um, so let's talk about Reducer. <laughs> what did you think of that section? I thought it was great to have a, another female supervillain. Yeah, we we've had a few, but you know, we haven't seen uh, other than you know Doctor Mrs. The Monarch. We haven't gotten to see a lot of super villainesses in action before. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They're always just in crowd uh, shots. Yeah, and I really liked the like the concept. That it was like Medusa, but like instead of turning stuff into stone, it shrinks it. Mm-hmm. Um, so the name is a good pun. Yeah, the name's a good pun. Uh, you know, it's got this whole like ongoing Ray Harryhausen thing that they like reference Clash of the Titans uh, in the Spanakopita episode uh, I think last season. They actually did some, uh, you know, Ray Harryhausen stop motion animation. Uh, so, you know, that was kind of a great callback. And I thought when um, she shrank her head and you'd have her hear her voice go up, it reminded me of that scene from Beetlejuice where his head right. gets shrunk and he talks really uh, high. Which, uh, actually counts as the second Beetlejuice reference uh, this season because in last episode they used Killinger's name as Beetlejuice. That's true. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so only a few little things uh, left uh, under uh, references. Uh, Shore Leave doing the upside-down face thing. Now, you thought this was from the 70s, and I thought this was from memes because I've seen, like, 
videos on YouTube where people did Star Wars using like upside down faces. Maybe I'm confusing it with like that Mr. Wences or whatever that thing was from like the late night talk shows from back in the day. But I I think I've seen I think I've seen um, this upside down talking head as a TV screen thing as like a gag from children's shows that were from like the 70s and stuff. Okay. Uh, well, that would certainly make sense with the googly eyes. Um, and then finally, uh, you know, when, when Brock and Vatred uh, skydove off the Vendet Tower, uh, I felt like they, they kind of like did a mashup of the Venture Brothers theme and the Mission Impossible theme, uh, which would certainly fit the circumstance. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, just oh, real quick, uh, when they're talking about uh, when, when when Pete and when Mr. White and um, Billy are like at the when they're sort of going over their significance of their loss, they see this big bridge at at the end of one of them saying, um, "I'll cross that, we'll cross that bridge when we come to it." And what's funny is Duran Duran's social media manager clearly found out about this episode of the show and had made a Twitter meme that pointed out that there actually is a line very similar to that one. In the music video, the is there something I should know music video, there's the line, I, one of the lyrics of the song is, I'll cross that bridge when I find it. So Duran Duran's status update was correcting them, saying, actually, the line goes like this, I'll cross the bridge when I find it. Um, you know, we never found out whether or not Bowie knew about the show before he died. Um, so it's yeah. kind of cool um, that, like, at least some of the artists referenced seem to know oh, we, about. We do know that um, uh, Jarvis Cocker does know about the show. Uh, oh, because, cool. uh in in one of the finale episodes, uh I forget which season, uh he uses uh they used like a friend and it was one of the rare cases where they actually shelled out the budget to use that specific song. Right. Uh, and it's a great song and the way they use it in the episode is amazing. And then I saw a video on YouTube where he, he called them out in one of his uh in one of his concerts and said, like, this is for the Venture Brothers. So, like, that was that was a wonderful moment where it's sort of like art imitating life, imitating art. Hmm. Um, uh, when, when, when Billy Quizboy is sort of going through a litany of how the world would be different uh, if the, if Duran Duran hadn't, and had not played out the way they said, they also just mentioned new rock band, which they, I guess said a system of a down and nineties hip hop. I think he was really talking about, new metal and new metal which was like a lot mm-hmm. of metal influenced by hip-hop um and uh those would be an, that would be an example of a band from them so just pulling that out and that is the last of the references that i have um so we want to okay. talk about themes yes yeah, so let's start with uh 80s music and the sort of this argument that seems to be made by Billy and think cloud about sort of what eighties culture did with ideas about jocks and geeks. Yes, exactly. So eighties culture was like very much in mass media telling a lot of stories about jocks versus weirdos and jocks versus geeks. That is just the narrative that is all over the place. I think it might have to do with who was creating art that was commercial at the time. Um, I really wish I could have something more specific to say about that significance of pop and that significance of pop culture. But um, one of the things that you should note is that like, so the new romantic music 
movement and style and subculture in general, you know, really came out in the like like the end of 79 and like 1980 and 1981, basically in England. It was not very long lived, but it set off a lot of related pieces. Um, You know, it was the forerunners of goth and it really was what set up all the new wave bands that then we heard about in America, just like Americans. All of these bands that in America we were told are one-hit wonders with one catchy song actually have entire albums of excellent songs, and we're all very big in yeah. England, and like you should probably go listen to them. Um, but anyway, so it was a very significant flash in the pan that like actually set off a tons of other musical changes. And I think it's interesting to talk where well, he says that Duran Duran would have been a jock rock band. So guys like Spandau Ballet, who were very explicitly leftist um, – actually like started the new romantic scene. Um, Duran Duran adopted those styles and played excellent music, but weren't part of the scene. They are from Birmingham, whereas the new romantics were ah. centered out of London. So if the new romantics in London hadn't happened, Duran Duran would still probably be a band. It would have been a different band and it probably right. would have been like a jock band or who knows, it would have been some other kind of band, but it would have been a different band. So I well, thought that was a really uh, smart way to break here. it out. What, what would you classify as jock rock? So that's another thing. There's never been like a genre that called itself that really. If you look at like CDs it's that like sell themselves. Term, right? Yes, exactly. I mean, like, I think that they mean it to be like music that's listened to by jocks, i.e. music that's listened to by people who don't prioritize music in their subcultural identity formation, you know, people who only know what's on the radio and stuff like that. Um, Ah, okay. So I'm I'm looking at some, like there were actual albums put out in the 90s called... 90s, there were compilations, yes. But none of the bands that were in that... Would have would have identified themselves as being part of a jock rock subculture, right? But it was it was the sort of thing where you take a song, you remove it from context, mm-hmm. um, you know, and all you do is just sort of care about the, like the hook, right? So it's got exactly. you know, "We Will Rock You" by Queen, it, mm-hmm. "Blitzkrieg Pop" by the Ramones, um, and you know, none and none of those songs like there is no such actual subculture we're seeing as jock rock. There is music that has been called that because it is songs that are played in a sports environment. Um, interestingly, right. actually thinking one of the biggest like arena songs of all time was that was the Gary Glitter song um, that was always God. Why is it? It's just the name. Rock and Roll Part Two. Thank you. Um, and you Which know he's somebody who was actually, on Jock Rock. Indeed, um, he was actually not an early person. He was like a latecomer adopter of glam rock music, and then also a child molester of like small children, um, yeah. which I distinguish from people who have sex with teenagers. Anyway. Um, yeah, exactly. So he, so I don't think they really play it anymore. But, uh, but that was sort of a taking of, you know, something that like when, when, when glam happened, and then again when the new romantics, like we're talking about men wearing effeminate clothing and makeup and dressing very flamboyantly, and that exists and in opposition cool. to jock culture. I'm sorry. But, but that's the other thing is that like I think the importance of like the the pop music part of it is that those figures made it cool to be more androgynous or, or mm-hmm. gender queer because mm-hmm. there were examples that, you know, uh, people would give. And that's clearly been like a big part of the show's DNA from the beginning. I mean, especially, you know, we talked about uh, with regard to David Bowie last episode. Um, yeah. So, you know, I was also thinking, you know, the eighties were certainly when like nerd culture started to become a thing that was referenced, you know, like revenge of the nerds 
or mm-hmm. like Steve Urkel being on TV. Uh, <laughs> you know, we, we we definitely got these sort of figures. So I'm wondering if like part of the argument here is about like would there have been a cultural place for a Billy Quiz Boy uh, if the new romantics hadn't happened? And would there be a cultural place for a lot of us if these kind of uh, you know these these symbols and these models had never existed? I you know I think that's that's I think that's exactly right. Like that's that's the history that like it brought us to this point. Um, I, it's interesting also that Mr. White is the guy who's sort of doubting the significance of the object because he like has he has a new wave haircut like now and always. Yeah. Um, but I think that there's a question of like whether an object of totemic significance is actually valuable or if it's just the things that you associate with it. Remember, Mr. White used to be a DJ. He was a college rock right. DJ. When the guys were in school, which would have been the late seventies, I believe, right? So he would have yeah. been playing glam fact, rock. Uh, Pete White says something about he was the first DJ to play. Um, what was it? He's trying to. Um, he's trying to impress a teenager, basically. Um, oh, at the on the on the uh, episode with the the um with what's your name's fan with a. Uh, Triana and her friends. uh, DJ in their college to play the Bauhaus. Yes. So that would have, that like should have worked on her, but except he's way old. Um, Yeah. Well, you know, he's clearly like, you know, you look at him in the, well, the other thing I was going to say is that, you know, I think like Pete White's got this thing where he kind of vacillates between being a nerd and being cool. Uh, yeah. Or at least like how he tries to present. So, you know, you look at him in college mm-hmm. and he was a pimply faced D&D playing dork. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, he clearly when he, you know, made himself over as a TV presenter, um, you know, definitely tried to go sort of more mainstream and got into uh, and everything else. Um, so. I kind of want to move on to talk about failure and success, uh, you know, because that's such a running theme, uh, you know, in the entire show's oeuvre. Uh, so, you know, most obviously in this episode, right, Billy Quizboy and Pete White wash out. Conjectural technologies, they, they literally sell out, um, you know, potentially to save the world. Um, so there's that kind of, I think that idea of kind of like noble failure uh, running throughout the, the show is very much there. Uh, and then on the other hand, you, you know, you definitely get uh, the monarch, you know, feeling like a failure, um, you know, because he's only a three or a four and he used to be a six and wide whale is a 10. And I'm wondering, like, is that numbers thing? Is that supposed to be like that bullshit dating terminology, like someone being a perfect 10? Or is it supposed to be like a dick joke thing? Oh, um I just took it as being power rankings, which is something that exists in how people talk about superhero characters since the days of trading cards. Yeah, I mean, you, but know, you might be right too. I, I could see that. Um, you know, and then on the flip side, like you know, uh, as you mentioned, like you know, Sergeant Vatred, um, you know, who who's seeing himself as you know nothing more than a glorified tour guard, actually successfully outsmarts a villain. Um, so there's sort of that going on. Um, I also thought that. The scene where uh, the monarch and henchman 21 kind of successfully take down an opponent together was kind of a small little moment because, you know, 
let's face it, you know, one of the many ways in which uh, the monarch is like Rusty Venture is that they're both emotionally withholding. Um, and, you know, the, the monarch has never been one to praise uh, his underlings. And I felt like here he and uh, Henchman 21 kind of had a real uh, moment of appreciation and bonding. Yeah, that's that's good. One of the other things is like the way that he outsmarted, like, the way he outsmarted um, Wide Whale. You know, was really an example of like you just straight up using misdirection, and that's sort of a, a, a tactic that's often equated with magic tricks. One thing that you know, oh, speaking of misdirection, I actually got successfully misdirected by uh, Public and Hammer because when. Uh, Brock is talking about how his back hurts and he thinks that tranks make people heavier. I thought mm-hmm. he was talking about the old sea captain. And I was like, wait a second. That doesn't make sense. Like, the old sea captain looks like he weighs 90 pounds soaking wet. And then only afterwards did I realize they're talking about the polar bear. Yes, carrying the polar bear. Yeah. Um, so I thought that was a great little misdirect. Um, so let's talk about. So, one thing I definitely want to spend some time on is this idea of retrofuturism versus kind of social media slash Silicon Valley. Because uh, in this episode, you know, while Rusty Venture is normally a horrible human being, um, you know, I think we get a sense in this episode that in some ways, like the monarch, he is an artist when it comes to super science, in the sense that what he cares about is this vision of the future that came out of the 1960s, right? He says what he wants is jet-powered automatic trains, conveyor belts on the streets, plug-and-play kidneys. And, like, to me, that's the future as seen in the Jetsons. Doc also has plug-and-play kidneys, in a sense, because he stole kidneys from his sons in the the, uh, first episode. Well, I mean, you know, he did that back when they were clones and a little bit more replaceable. But certainly you could get where, you know, given that he's had two kidneys stolen, uh, where, you know, access to, to kidneys in a hurry would become, you know, something that he would care <laughs> about. But he also he also says in a more sort of uh, philosophic sense, he says, you know, I'm talking about uh, a legacy of super science, a legacy of looking at tomorrow as it hasn't, as if it hasn't come yet, and when it will be here, it will be amazing. And that, I think, is like almost – could be seen as a thesis statement for the whole show because, you know, what they're talking about is like this world that was seemingly promised in Hanna-Barbera cartoons and in, you know, comic books, that the future would be amazing. And that one of the sort of the funny things about, you know, our sort of our current day is that we've got a lot of high technology in ways that, you know, things that come out of, Science fiction. I mean, you you know, an iPhone is essentially a tricorder from Star Trek. You know, we've sequenced the human genome, or we've got 3D printing, and we're, you know, working on nanomachines. You know, we're working on cloning. But in a lot of ways, the kind of more fantastical elements of that kind of futuristic vision haven't come to pass. It's the sort of where's my jetpack moment, uh, if you will. Uh, and, you know, Part of what that got me thinking about is the fact that, you know, Silicon Valley has has done a lot of kind of technological and um, 
kind of intellectual transformations, you know, the creation of the Internet, mobile phones, you know, the fact that you're listening to this podcast right now, you know, all of that kind of communication stuff. But in terms of, like, changing the world, not as much, right? It's a lot of effort going into a very limited set of technologies. And I think Silicon Valley itself kind of feels that way. because Every time you look at what people like Elon Musk, the folks at Google or Facebook are, like, investing their money in, it's all of this, like, science fiction stuff, right? You know, it's it's rockets, you know, reusable rockets to the moon. It's, uh, you know, investing in AI. It's investing in, you know, uh, like, you know, eternal life, right? There's this whole, like, anti-aging project that, that people in Google are putting money into. So I wonder if there's, like, a sense by which, like, this whole generation of people who you know, grew up with a particular vision of what the future was going to look like are kind of dissatisfied with the future that they've created and want to make something a little bit more like science fiction. That's pretty sweet. I think this is going to be a major theme throughout the next rest of the season. Like there's no point in having them being in New York and running the company if they're not going to be dealing with this. So, Right. And, you know, I did think it was really interesting that Dean was the one who – who argued for a synthesis that like what we got in the end wasn't like a rejection of the present, right? That can be, you know, that can be pretty divisive and kind of dismissive in and of itself. Like everyone who thinks that, you know, millennials suck because they, they, you know, only care about Twitter and and Tumblr and Instagram. Um, And, you know, what he's, what he's saying is that you need both, right? You know, and, and that's always been kind of part of Rusty's problem is he's never been able to synthesize the two worlds. That, you know, he, he runs companies into the ground and he, he trades off, you know, the legacy of his father without really innovating much himself. And, you know, he's an asshole boss. Uh, so the, the moment where he sort of says, you know, look, you need to keep the business side going, but we also need this speculative engineering to give us a sense of direction, a sense of, like, you know, imagination and possibility is really meaningful. Like, it shows a lot of growth in Dean, and it also shows the the place where Billy Quizboy and Pete White are going to slot into because they get bought out by Ventec, and conjectural technology's whole thing is going to be, like, conjectural technologies, right? You know, thinking about what the future can be. It's interesting to me, though, because, like, developing these as a synthesis is obvious. So it's kind of, I don't know. Well, it's obvious, but it's something that the show hasn't done before. And it's an alternative to failure, you know? (laughs) That's true. Um, Compromise as an alternative to failure. Yeah. um, So the other sort of theme that I want to talk about uh, in our remaining time is uh, the theme of family. Because we're just seeing it pop up all over the place. Like, you know, as uh, Rusty Venture was talking about, there's the whole legacy of the Venture family, right? That they've been super scientists since the turn of the 20th century. Um, And, you know, that whole link to many... it's, It's not just about super science. I think it's also about, like, speculative fiction, right, that that um, Rusty Venture's grandfather is clearly coming out of the the, um, the world of 
like Victorian science fiction and pulp fiction. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, jo- uh, Rusty's father, Jonas Venture, is very much like the vision of super science that came about with, you know, pulp fiction and superhero comics and sort of the the vision of the future as seen by Marvel Comics in the 1960s, where yes. everything was going to be Kirby machines and amazing. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the, the show has always sort of wondered about, like, what was the dark side of that legacy? What are the pitfalls of trying to live up to that legacy? And, you know, should we be kind of focused on nostalgia or looking to the future? Um, so, you know, I'll be very interested to see how that goes kind of coming forward. And now we've got the, the, the Monarch's family secret. And I'm thinking that's going to be really focused on sort of the idea of super villainy and superheroism is like opposite sides of the coin. Mm-hmm. You know, I, what if essentially the Joker was Batman's kid, messed up kid? Um, you mean other than Jason we, Todd? But yes. Yeah. But, you know, I mean, like literally we've seen uh, in, in previous seasons, like there there's an episode where the monarch dresses in essentially uh, – uh, Jason Todd's uniform to like fuck with uh, the Venture Brothers version of Batman, uh, Captain Sunshine. Mine. So <laughs> That's like, right. he, he's definitely got he's definitely got that like you know Joker vibe to him. Like what he does best uh, as a supervillain is just to like screw with people's heads. Um, you know, so I I, I really kind of want to see like how does he react to to finding out that like his family legacy might be on the other side. Um, and then we've got the wild whale and Dugon, um, you know, these two brothers and their obsession with marine mammals. Um, also, you know, I, one of the things that I was just noticing is a theme that that's running throughout Venture Brothers is uh, cancer and the cure for cancer being like a kind of an obsessive quest. Um it, it uh, is used as, as shorthand by people in the world at, at large, though, in terms of yeah. scientific discoveries that are, that are meaningful. Right. But, you know, I mean, that's what, all, that, that's what took down uh, J.J., you know. He, he was dying of cancer. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's true. In, you know, in all that in Gargantua too. Uh, also, what's, what's the name of that crazy southern colonel um, who was also a Hulk? Oh, uh uh, Colonel Timothy Tra- Traster. Yeah, so like he had the the PP cancer. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you know it's, it is seemed to be this sort of running theme. Um, so anyway, you know the fact that the wild whale and Dugong are brothers, and that eventually, you know the monarch stepped over like the one kind of uh, unbreakable line in in uh, superheroism, the thing that makes it kind of low stakes and sixties comics books versus kind of, you know, 1980s comic books uh, is going to be interesting uh, to see how they handle that. Yeah. Yeah, I think this is when that, this is one of the story threads that's going to start paying off. Yeah, and then, you know, finally, uh, what I'm looking forward to seeing is, you know, Hank seems to have this whole Steve McQueen thing going on. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, I He really kept the jacket from last episode. Yeah, he kept the jacket, um, and you know he seems to be just kind of focusing on having fun. But I'm I'm looking forward to seeing 
you know, how Dean is going to go with this whole uh, super science thing, which he seems to, to care more about and uh, be focused on. And his dad sort of picked him out as being that guy um, earlier. Like back when the boys were oh, just yeah. beginning to show, to show different personalities from one another, his dad had sort of assigned him to be like the quote, smart one, scientist one had it sent off. Right. Uh, yeah. And it's enough Hank to go and like do grunt work. So it's weird that that, I mean, I guess they're fo- in a way they are following out their father's aspirations and assumptions about them. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm kind of wondering like in terms of where they're going to end up, like Hank certainly has an attraction to super heroics. Like he's always attached himself to Brock Samson. Uh, yeah. He like you know, his, his first instinct is the grapple gun, you know, from last episode. And, you know, Dean's kind of, uh, you know, Dean's been exposed to this seductive mistress that is prog rock and, which, <laughs> you know, apparently has this deep link with super science in the Venture Brothers universe. So, yes. uh, you know, and he's going to, to college. And that's kind of, you know, in terms of failure and success, like the fact that Rusty Venture never graduated from college was, in fact, a, uh, a legacy. And the fact that, that Dean isn't going to upstate university suggests a kind of a new uh, a new direction there. Yeah. Uh I definitely think like, you know, Hank is Hank is essentially Brock's kid, even though he's not. Yeah. Um, okay, so that's all I got. Yeah, um I guess I'll just Leave you all with an amazing quote I got from an, uh, uh, an interview with Spandau Ballet that I read in The Guardian as I was planning for this episode. Ha, um, the writer says, uh, "High among uh, Angel Boys was the earlier pre-naming themselves Spandau Ballet band name. High among Angel Boy priorities was the class war." Gary Kemp argued, "They don't understand style in working class terms. They think it means money." Well, it doesn't. One of the most difficult things is explaining what style is to middle-class journalists because they always connect style with being bourgeois and they spend their whole lives trying to escape it. I just love that quote. It's so wonderful. Um, So thank you again to the Venture Brothers for giving me an excuse to do things that have stuff to do with shit I studied in college. Um, Generally of my own volition, there there was not actually Uh. a class in glam rock, but something you can focus on in anthropology. Um, yeah, I think that's it. Uh, you know, I okay. want to thank everybody who's helped share the, promote the episode online. We weren't necessarily going to do episode two, but we had such great numbers. We decided to tape it. Um, if you guys knock it out of the back, the ballpark again this week, uh, then you can hear us again next week. All right. See you then. Hopefully you can find graphic policy online at graphicpolicy.com. We're on uh, Twitter at graphic policy and Tumblr as well. Uh, I'm Ilana Brooklyn, and uh, that joining me was Steve Adewell. Keep it geeky. And uh, oh, uh, right, go ahead. Oh well, I was going to say you can find me at uh, racefortheironthrone.wordpress.com. Uh, I'm now doing a column called the the People's History of the Marvel Universe, which you can find on Graphic Policy, and you can find me on Twitter at Stephen Atwell. Great. Good night, everyone. <laughs>